This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by John Cross of the Daily Mirror and Tony Evans of the Evening Standard. It's incredible to think that Liverpool could finish an incredible season with nothing. Tottenham are running on empty at the worst time of year. Now, this might not go down well with everyone, but the rest of Europe probably wants a Cruyff final. Ajax, Barcelona, the Champions League, a celebration of the game's finer virtues. Understand that, John? <laughs> I understand the romance of it, but from a very English point of view, I do think that we dreamed perhaps of having an all-English uh, Champions League final. There's a, there's a decent chance we might get that in the Europa League final, but I just think it's been it's been a cruel week, isn't it, for the two English teams in, in the Champions League, simply because I don't think anyone, even though it finished 3-0 to Barcelona, no one could have really complained if Liverpool had got a draw in the new Camp. It wouldn't have been that rough a justice. Liverpool played ever so well, but just maybe Klopp got it slightly wrong. They, they would sort of look back on chances to score that, that you know could have given them a precious away goal and then the tie wouldn't be over. I'm not sure it's completely dead, but you'd have to say it's, it's a massive long shot and you really wouldn't fancy... Barcelona not to score if, if Liverpool are chasing the game. And conversely, also Spurs. I just fancy Spurs. I still don't think that they're dead in the water yet because I think they, they've got goals in them, particularly Son coming back, who's got this great habit of being almost the ultimate player for, for a counter-attacking team because he's got, you know, he's got great pace, he's got fantastic movement and he can really relish on Spurs if they're, if they're sitting deep trying to defend then Spurs have been very good in Europe this season, away from home, getting results away from home and hitting teams on the counter. So I do still think that Spurs just might ruin that, that vision of a final yet. <laughs> Let's start with Liverpool, Tony. Um, obviously, a club you know well. Let's accentuate the negative. If they miss out on both, mm. what impact will that have? I don't think there's too much of an impact this year because there's a great sense, there's still a great sense of progression about Klopp. I mean, it's remarkable to think, uh, you know, he's in his fourth year now and, by, you know, so it's early on next season and starts his fifth. There's a freshness and there's a sense of them moving forward. Um, at some point, they're going to have to win trophies. Uh, but I think this season, even if they, you know, they, they come second, you know, this, you know, third highest points total ever, uh, that gets them off the hook, you know, sort of, and that they should be on the hook. Mm. Uh, you know, getting to the semi-final of the Champions League, getting beat by Barcelona if they do, well, that you know, no one could be embarrassed by that. And you know, Lionel Messi. So there is, a, I think, there'll be a great uh, sense of positivity in the summer. I think his danger year is next year if they don't live up to expectations and they don't sort of put the pressure on City again. Uh, if the other teams and the you know the the other four teams in the top six raise the games and, and challenge them. I think that'll be the danger time where people start to question. But at the moment, I think regardless of what happens in the next 10 days, people will come out of this season and go, Liverpool fans will go, yeah, you know what? 
that was a positive season. That's brilliant. Klopp's the man, and Klopp's the man to bring the title back. So I think that's the mood there. Mm. You know, Anfield will be buzzing, as it is in these occasions. Mm. Liverpool obviously need to sort of ride that emotional wave. Do they need to actually just basically throw themselves, you know, come hell or high water at Barcelona? (sighs) Probably, but with a bit of balance because I just think in Lionel Messi, you have got a player who can win games, turn games on his own. And I think if you do leave him isolated, if you do leave him on his own, he's so dangerous. I I thought that the way that the the tie was structured, i.e. Liverpool going away first, would give them... A, a real edge, simply because I think we've seen it so many times before that Barcelona away from home in the first leg, and then they're left with a you know a bit of work to do still at the new Camp, and then that is when Messi is at his most dangerous because when he dominates and takes over a game as he did in in, in the first leg, then he can absolutely kill you. But I think the worry for for Liverpool is that we've seen in I mean particularly our draw in last season where they went into games last season against Man City and against Roma for example and they blew them away didn't they in the mm. first half an hour and I can see that that they'll really go for it early on and if they could sort of get a goal in the first t- 10 or 15 minutes that would give them a hell of a start but from there you almost have to be a little bit more patient because if they could get make it 2-0 before half time suddenly everyone would be completely buzzing but it's what you leave at the other end because I don't think this is Bizarrely, I don't think this is a vintage Barcelona team. I really don't. Arta is a good player in midfield, but, you know, Busquets is maybe coming towards the end a little bit. You know, he's not the force that he was. Vidal's never really convinced. Absolutely. And, and, you know, defensively, still, I think there's a few question marks, even though, you know, people rightly say that Piquet is arguably having his best season ever for Barcelona. He really does look good at times. But I just think that there are opportunities and there will be cracks but it will depend on getting that balance between kind of early momentum against a little bit of patience. Mm. So in a sense it's another test of the maturity of both Klopp and his team isn't it Tony? Mm. Yeah and and I thought they they showed immaturity at the end of the game in the new camp by throwing so many people forward. You're 3-0 down. Don't overcommit and let them get a fourth because then it really is over. And, uh, you know, if, if, if Dembele doesn't, you know, doesn't, you know, let's say, lose his bottle <laughs> at the end, it, it, it's 4-0. And, and that's just daft. At 3-0, you got to take a big, deep breath and say, OK, right, you know, we, we have blown teams away at Anfield. You know, there's not, not just last year in the Champions League. You know, the year before Dortmund... You know, it's, uh, it, it, it is possible. I mean, less likely because it's Barcelona. But, you know, you, you've, got to, you've got to be calm about it. So, yeah, I think they'll start off. I, I mean, I, I think where you can get Barcelona is, is run at them. You know, it's, uh, the, the, there are running lanes through that midfield, which we saw at the new Camp. And the defence, I think, are the most uncomfortable when they're, when they're you know, sort of either turned around or backpedalling. Um, so I, I think they've got to do that. There is a chance. I wouldn't think there's too much of a chance. Yeah, because the one thing that did impress me about Barcelona, you know, above and beyond, obviously, Messi, was the fact, almost like their game intelligence, mm-hmm. that they, you know, they, they looked at the, at the Liverpool press and thought, right, and they knew the time to counter, counteract that. Um, you know, and I suppose if you look at that, you know, in, in human form, it's embodied in someone like um, uh, Busquets, for instance, you know. So Barcelona, you know, they're not just a one-man team, are they? There, there, is, there is a culture there that they represent as well. Yeah, there is. And I think the game management is particularly pertinent when, when it comes to, you know, the, the game at Anfield. If you do suddenly find yourselves ahead, then not to commit too much more in search of the definitive goal or the equalising goal. Because otherwise, you know, if Barcelona score, then you need five. And then that really is, you know, a a disaster. So that's about game management. And I do talk about sort of Busquets, you know, maybe reaching the end. But actually, the reality is that when you have sort of wily old stages like that, Mm. they they are the, the masters at sort of kind of just knowing when to kind of sit and defend, be disciplined, sit back. And, and Liverpool, let's be honest, had a great deal of pressure at various points. I mean, the, the second half of the first half, 
They, I thought they were terrific. And then, the, you know, the first 20, 25 minutes of the second half, again, absolutely bossing the game, really. But then it's, it, it was Barcelona reading the, the, the signals, wasn't it? Mm. And then breaking and then counter-attacking. They and it's a fascinating well. game. With just, absolutely, they break it up, don't yeah. they? Yeah, they know how to just replay. And Liverpool are very naive that way. Mm. They don't. Mm. It's an interesting because you actually can see parallels in Barcelona and Manchester City in that tactical fouling that you, you, you see. But Pep says it never happens. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, talking of Pep, you know, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, because of the whole Cruyff celebration that people are talking about, about his relationship with Cruyff himself. What are the intrinsic differences between the two of them? Is it a case of Cruyff being the romantic and Guardiola being a bit more of the realist. Yeah, I think I think Guardiola strikes a, a, a nice balance between the two because, yeah, he is sort of realistic. I think in, in his in his approach, and he's a bit more how can I put this? Bit more modern in his approach in terms of you know in, in terms of those sort of kind of tactical fouls, which obviously never <laughs> happened. But um, but he, I mean, he's he's a shrewd. Operate, isn't he? Because sometimes he will change the system. Um, you know the way that he's sort of kind of. I think he did a little bit more last season when he, he opted for for a three run the four, for example. But he's a little bit more versatile in, in midfield and in what he does. But I do think that that Guardiola is absolutely. I, I think he. I think he's incredibly cute when when reading situations. Though I, what I would say is that. There's a few there's a few question marks still over the Champions League, isn't there, mm. for, for, for for Guardiola and and you'd have to say that I think that would be his biggest frustration of of indeed the season really, and I think that that Cruyff always seemed to be able to when when he was a manager just be able to play the beautiful game but also get results and he sort of embraced and embodied the two and you could understand why Guardiola was so inspired obviously by him. But I just think that that would be the greatest frustration, I think, out, out of those two. But it's such fine margins, isn't it? Because, you know, Man City have, have faltered. Liverpool now look as if, if, they, if they might sort of falter in this competition. But the margins are so slight. Mm. And I think that's what almost makes this, the Champions League, such a, such a high risk and such a high entertainment business. Because it is so, it's, it's done on the smallest of margins. And that sets out the greats, doesn't it? I mean, Cruyff, as we sort of talk about there, has had so much success on it. And when you consider that those margins involved between success and failure, there's, there's nothing in it. And that sets apart the greats, I think. Mm. Given, given that, Tony, where does Klopp rate in the whole sort of pantheon of modern managers? Just below the top level? Um, I mean, it depends who you put on the top level. I, I think he's in the... He's in the top rank. You know, he, he he probably needs to win a title at Liverpool and, you know, the Champions League to actually cement himself up right at the top. But, you, you know, you, you've got to say, I, I put it in simplest terms, he's the best manager Liverpool could get. And, um, and I think almost every team except City in the Premier League could probably swap for him if they had a chance. Mm. And most of Europe, I mean, outside probably Barcelona and Real Madrid. And, and, and frankly... Real Madrid might, um, so so yeah, he's up there, and um, and I think deservedly so. Um, he, he ideally, you know, he will bring a trophy to Anfield, and that's you know the, the, the club's ready for it. But uh, yeah, I, I put him up there. I mean, I think he's um, Guardiola's got a di slightly different sort of status because what he did at Barcelona. Um, but yeah, he's. I think they're the two best managers to. Yeah, probably two best managers in Europe. Yeah. Did he make a strategic mistake in the first leg uh, by including Joe Gomez? And, you know, that signalled a little bit of caution to me. Yeah, I, I think... I mean, it was clear that it, Trenton was going to have a difficult night. You know, they're going to push, push Alba up on him, Coutinho and probably double up. And people tried that in Europe before. And, and he's, you know, it'd be, there's times when he's struggled and there's times when he's, he's coped. But he's a year older. I, I, thought, I thought that was a mistake because... You know the, the fullbacks, the width they give Liverpool, and the, the the space they create going forward. Never mind the crossing, because we all know about the crossing. But they, they spread the the opposition defence in midfield and allow more running lanes there. So I, I I think I think personally that was a mistake. I mean he's not going to get any help from Salah in front if he plays Trent. That's that's clear, and we've seen that before in Europe. But you know 
say to one of the other midfielders, drop in, drop in. And I'm, you know, I'm not so sure playing Wijnaldum in, in that sort of, I mean, people were saying a false nine. It's kind of, <laughs> everything was false about it, never mind the nine. It didn't work. You know, it's a, he probably would have been better. I, you know, there's a case sometimes for going to, uh, going to a flat four in midfield and playing two up front. Um, you know, and but at a game like that, in a big game like that, just changing everything. Well, if you got, if you haven't got the personnel to play your favoured system, then it's stupid playing the favoured system. If you ask me, mm. I think yeah, you've got to be more pragmatic. You've got to say what suits these players, and um, you know, and clearly that position didn't suit Wijnaldum. Mm. You know, you mentioned Son earlier on, and we'll talk about Tottenham in a minute, John. Firmino, mm. he was missed, wasn't he? Massively, and I do think we're caught in between the sort of discussion over whether he's fully fit or or whether basically it was a sort of a tactical one. But it was such a big, it's such a big one, wasn't it? And and immediately his absence from the previous weekend made you think, oh, you know, it's. I, I just think Liverpool are in a position now where they, yeah, it sounds really naive, but I think if they're at full strength, why not, you know, take the game to Barcelona? And that, that, that I think that's what arguably they would have done, maybe with a little bit more. You know, cautious or uh, caution in midfield just to sort of balance it up. But I, I I think we'll always be wondering what if, you know, what if they'd done something different at right back? What if they, they, they basically Firmino had been fully fit? Because there's no way I don't think Firmino is fully fit than he doesn't play. Mm. But then all of a sudden, you know, you've got this weird sort of system and, and, and that feeling of frustration really, because as well as Liverpool played, I just think if, if they'd had their best 11 out, their best system out, then I think they would have got far more from the game. And it is a big frustration simply because I think that I think everyone stood back and admired, you know, the two two best teams by an absolute country mile in English football this season. And I think it will be frustrating that we I think we would argue that they're the best two teams in Europe as well. Mm. And I don't think that's been a little Englander. I think that's a genuine case. And unfortunately, we, we've for one reason or another, we, we, you know, it looks like neither will make the final. Mm. You've seen a lot of great European uh, Liverpool teams in Europe, Tony. Mm. Where does this group compare to the rest? Um, I, well, I mean, frankly, until they win it, they don't do they? I mean, it's yeah. um, uh, I, I, you know they're exciting and they're great, and it's it, you know it's fantastic, it's wonderful to watch. But we don't want to get into the Wenger syndrome, do we? Where you know, like the football, you know, the exciting football. It's a joy to watch and you win nothing for a long time. You know, that's not the Liverpool way. The Liverpool way, I mean, you know, one of the best Liverpool teams I've ever seen go away in Europe is the 84 team that went to Rome. And you know what? It was a battle. It was a fight. There was not, a, there was not an ounce of entertainment in the game. You know, and it was just a, you know, tooth and nail, you know, and, and they had to hang on against a team playing at home, a, a very good team with Brazilians, you know, in a, you know, Italian World Cup winners. And, you know, you, you might look at them and you go, oh, well, this this team, I, I destroyed them, they'd run at them. But again, that those teams are game craft. They knew how to win games. They knew how to win games that they shouldn't win. Um, this team has a, a tendency, of, you know, and, and they've only been beaten once this year by City in the league and the margins were so narrow, it was untrue. It could have gone either way. But they're still, when they get to, to this level, and again, in Kiev last year against Real Madrid, there's teams you look at and on paper you go, you know what, Liverpool have got a chance here. And, um, and, and the likes of Real Madrid and Barcelona put them in the place. So if they want to be compared to the great Liverpool teams, they've got to put some trophies in the cabinet. And until then, I think we should avoid that question. <laughs> yeah, OK. Cater, he's basically done for a couple of months because mm. of an adductor injury. Um, is that the area, you know, with your reservations, Tony, that that Liverpool need to improve on, that midfield area? Yeah, it's really, it's, it is a weird dilemma, really, because... You know, uh, I was talking to to, to one of the uh, one of the sort of the Merseyside boys about it the other day, and sort of saying what's what's the what's the best midfield trio, and he he, he said a trio which was different from one of the other guys on the beat, and yeah. I, I just it, it said to me a few days previously, and it's it, it's almost finding that, and I do think it's pretty helpful, you know, to to be kind of fluid and have a sort of a different, slightly different system and that, and I think. There's no doubt about it. You can't knock Klopp 
for big, this season because they've, you know, I would argue, still done so well over the course of the season. And the midfield is the one area where it's been completely rotated through the course of it. But I do think also, though, it's pretty helpful sometimes to have that, that almost that first choice. And what would that be? That would be when Aldham, you know, you could make then make it the, the, the case for Henderson Milner mm. or Fabinho, you know, has had a great run. And then Kaito and... I, the only thing I would say about Kaito is I think he's had good spells in the season. I also think he's had sort of bad spells. Mm. And there's no getting away from that. Because I think what he was bought to do and has offered on occasions, maybe there's a potential there. I mean, you know, I think a lot of the best players in the Premier League who have come from overseas have, have maybe taken a year to bed in. But, and I'm talking about the very, very best. So maybe it's just a case of bedding in because when, 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 when we've seen the flashes are there he's a dynamic player who feeds the strikers brilliantly who breaks forward well he's good on the ball I just think there's all the ingredients there but I do think that that would be the one area where Klopp could possibly arguably say I could find someone better or find someone else to complement it because you know, that everyone individually has done really well. I mean, I, I was amazed that Wijnaldum didn't make the PFA Team of the Year because I think he's been brilliant at times, a bit of an unsung hero. Mm. But as for the rest, I think there's there's one maybe vacancy. I don't know what yeah. you think. I mean, it, it's, uh, Keita has struggled with the physicality over here and, you know, and that it's taken a long time for him to actually feel confident in, in you know, sort of in that. And, and Klopp... Hasn't trusted him to play mm. because he's he's a terrible one for not looking over his shoulder and he doesn't press as well. Uh, Fabinho, the, the the worries with him is that whether he was mobile enough, particularly side to side, uh, less a worry up and down, but you know across the the width of the pitch, which you need to to do in a club team. So I mean, they were the two players that last summer everyone thought would come in and change. I mean, you know, so I think most people thought the Champions League. Three in the midfield, you know, Wijnaldum, Milner, and Henderson were probably. I mean, it, it's too strong to say the worst um, midfield in the Champions League final from the Champions League era. But you know, it's like you look at them and you say they're a bit one-dimensional, and they were tired. They played a lot last year, so you know, you, you got to look at that. Um, uh, the plus side is that uh, both Fabino and um, Keita have actually. You know, grown in the last few last couple of months, and have been able to. It means that the others have been able to rest a little bit, but it's still a bit. It's still a bit uncertain. You know what the front three are going to be. You know what the back four is going to be. The midfield. You know, you know, toss a coin, pick a card. You know, Pam, Pam, three from five or six. Mm. And at least they've got squad depth. Whereas Spurs, probably being found out because of their lack of depth, they really need. Son's come back firing. And also, do they really need to take an absolute eyeballs-out gamble and say to Kane, give us a game? I think it would be a massive gamble because he has started, he has started doing some more, shall we say, you know, training work. But I do still think that ordinarily he would still be, say, two weeks away. And then I think it's a big, big gamble. I, I know where you're coming from because he's such a... Such a difference for talismanic figure, isn't he? He is, and it, it's hard to explain this. But I was sort of talking, you know, we we're in the press conference the other day, and I sort of kind of asked Pochettino about basically. And I tried to sort of say, you know, is it a positive that basically other players have, have stepped up in Kane's absence? And, and they have, they've actually stepped up and shared the goals amongst them. I, I guess the difference on Tuesday night was that, that Son wasn't there and, and was suspended. But I think that, you know, sometimes Pochettino can't, over, you know, can't see that, but anything as a negative. And it's not, certainly not intended because I think Spurs have missed Kane, obviously, for big chunks of this season because of injury. And, and other players have stepped up and almost relished and sharing that extra responsibility. But I, I just think it's probably too quick, too soon. If you asked Harry Kane, he'd be desperate to, to play and be there. But it's about the strength and condition of, of, of his ankles, you know. And, and they have, Look, it's become an issue for Harry Kane, isn't it? It, it? You know, other players are sort of kind of tainted by being called injury-prone. Uh, you know, it, it's a worry. And Kane's sort of in that territory. He really needs kind of to, to come back. So I think the worst thing that could ha- happen for Harry Kane 
who I think, are, you know, is an absolute national treasure, and I want him to be fit for the Nations League, by the way, is basically to come back too soon, get injured again, and everyone's saying, oh, he's a bit of a crock, isn't he? I, I mean, think that would be unfair. This could, you know, shorten his career. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a reoccurring injury anyway. The best thing that could happen to him, I think, is you know he'd, he'd love to play in the semi. He'd love to reach the final and play. In it. He'd love to play in the you know in, in in the Nations League. But the reality is, the best thing for him would be a summer off, mm. Gerrard Street, and come back next year. And hopefully, it you know there's no structural weakness there. Mm. Mm. You're at the Spurs first leg mm. um, for Tongan. You know, we're talking about player welfare here, you know, and we were talking you know, similarly about Kane. FIFA are talking about, you know, maybe introducing um, concussion substitutions, you know, in the way that they would do in, say, rugby. Is that overdue? It is overdue. And I also, I also wonder, because it's something, obviously, that, that, that happens in the NFL as well a little mm. bit, doesn't it? And I wonder whether in the practical... Um, intense and sort of dynamic of football whether it whether it it really works i just think the biggest single thing that i think is glaring from from english football and indeed european football and fifa and uefa have to look at it globally i think is independent doctors i mean mm. it's all well and good to say you know the, these are highly trained highly professional individuals as the club medics always are mm. But it's just, you imagine having, as a club medic, having a relationship with a player, having a relationship with a manager, they're looking at you and you've got to make this decision completely cold. And yes, I know that they're brilliant in their field, but that is an unfair pressure whether or not they make the right decision. But I looked and I was gobsmacked that Vertonghen, you know, came back on. And of course the player, he's brave, he's brilliant, he's a fantastic player of course he wants to play on but should he have been allowed to well I think the evidence tells us otherwise and listen I know that they've had the concussion tests mm. and that you know the concussion tests have come back negative but it really is unbelievably frustrating that, that basically a game of that magnitude that there's not an independent doctor to make it to make a ruling on that whether or not that was indeed concussion that that's almost irrelevant we should have an independent doctor they're on the sidelines. I know that FIFA Pro, you know, the European-wide um, Football Union. Players Union basically are pushing hard to have independent doctors um, in time for the Women's World Cup, which I think would be a huge step forward. I just think that this, this week's events, and it was totally shocking to see the Tongan go off like he did. It, it Really, if you can't be moved by that, mm. then I'm sorry. You, you know, you've got no feeling for it at all. The sooner we get independent doctors, that's the key more than anything else, mm. anything at all. I think there's a broader issue here as well, isn't there, where you, know, you, you look, we've got a generation of players who are dying through dementia. Mm. There are established links through you know, people like Jeff Astle uh, from CTE, brain damage, industrial disease, to quote the coroner in his case, from heading a football. Um, you've got people like Dawn Astle, Mm. You know, his daughter, waging almost like a sole campaign against it. Football needs to step up and basically you know, recognise its duty of care, doesn't it? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, uh, it's, you know, the concussion and head injuries actually might ultimately kill the NFL mm. and uh, it'll never get that bad in football for obvious reasons, a different game and, you know, that they actually take. But... I think it's really important to protect the players and protect them from themselves. You know, it's a, this is where I, uh, the PFA should have done more and Dawn Astle's been particularly vocal about that. And she's right. You know, it's, a, it's an area where the unions let the players down and I think the authorities have let the players down. Everyone needs to take a, a long, hard look at it. And, you know, it's... Um, I mean, you know, you, you looked at the, the blow of it. So you looked at how long he was down and when he got up... You know, it's, uh, he shouldn't have been anywhere near that pitch again. He should have been straight out, gone to get a scan, go, uh, being looked at and make sure that, you know, he, he was OK because, you know, we've seen, and thankfully it's pretty rare, but we've seen blows to the head and we've seen, you know, people die from it, you know, a couple of hours later. You, you know, you just can't be doing that. Mm. Uh, I spoke to a FIFA Pro member this week, board member, who was basically saying if you do suffer that concussion, 
and then um, suffer another concussion, which admittedly, you know, he even sort of said, you know, is would be obviously quite rare uh, within, say, half an hour. You are putting a player's life at risk. Just imagine that. I mean, it's just incredible to think. And they are also dealing with insurance cases now where a player has suffered, and, and get this, you know, if you're a defender or a striker, five or six concussions, during, you know, so that's classed as a concussion, which isn't that rare, let me tell you, you know, for, mm. for a player um, during the course of a career, that they can have massive long-term effects on a brain, you, you know, that, that basically could leave you you know, with, with serious migraines, with serious damage, you know, he's telling a story about one player who cannot even now, you know, be out in sunlight because it, of the devastating effects yeah. on the brain because of five or six concussions during his career. Yeah. We, we really have, I think, in football, not taking this, you know, seriously enough at all. Mm. And now finally, you know, I think it's seriously sad that something so shocking and indeed, you know, it's not even classed as a concussion that has finally woken mm. people up on it. All I can say, and I'll get the plug in now, you know, we've done an interview with Dawn Astle for a documentary, State of Play, which is going out in BT Sport uh, initially after the Europa League final. And anyone who sees that interview will understand the magnitude of the problem and relate to it on a human level. Mm -hmm. So moving on from that, the players themselves are, as we all know, really valuable commodities, aren't they? Mm. In that sense, why should Maurizio Pochettino be continually having to rattle the begging bowl? Well, it's, um, you know, the Tottenham of um, Tottenham famously struggled a little bit to. Uh, I mean, they've actually done quite well, wheeling and dealing over the years in the transfer market. But building this new stadium, uh, a lot of money have gone to that, the delays. They didn't have a lot of cash last summer, the summer before. You know, it's, um, well, you can see the, the way the way they've done things, the, the business side of it has not really um, meant that there was going to be a lot of money spent on players. And that was always going to happen. So I think it was still a dereliction of duty by a number of people at the club last summer, not to get more people in and, and sort of pad the squad because they look knackered. You know, um, you, you, you could see the, the loom and storm last week against um, uh, against West Ham. You know, they, they, they were shattered, you know, as, as a, a, a group. And, you know, you know, Deli Ali, you look at him and you think, the kid, the kid needs a break. Mm. You know, he's, um, he, he looked really leg weary and you know that the best that he has you know you're seeing it less and less and he just needs more you know you look at the bench as well you know the, the, there's a shortage of strikers a shortage of midfielders and a short, shortage of defenders I mean you know Got three goalies though well yeah yeah you know it's, uh, you know played them in the back three I, 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 the, the, the whole thing it, it, it's remarkable that Pochettino's done so well with them Mm. You know, sort of given the situation, mm. and I, I mean, they say that you know Tottenham will benefit from the new stadium long term, and in ten years, you know, everyone might say, "Oh, yeah, it was the best thing." In the short term, then it's left Pochettino, as you say, with a bag and bowl, and um, and basically everyone's walking past, not looking them in the eye. Yeah, yeah, because as he says himself, Tottenham is a club at a crossroads. Now they're mm. talking about maybe giving him three more players. Uh, you know, talk of uh, Andre Gomez, you know, nicking him from from Everton. Is that going to be enough? I I, I think that Pochettino really. There's two sides to the argument, really. I think there's obviously, you know, there was questioning of, of why the club didn't do any deals last summer, but there's also a school of thought with with Pochettino is that he's so loyal to his players that actually he can be reluctant to move them on, mm. and sometimes he just has this unshakable unmovable loyalty to them that makes him think, well, do I want to leave him out of the squad? Can I move him on? What about him? I've pr promised him this. And, you know, I, if to sign another player, I'll have to get rid of him. I think that, that, that what this season has taught him, as well as they've done, I think there's also mixed in there a little bit of frustration that they couldn't have pushed on league-wise. For him to have done so well, I think, to make them competitive and also still to reach a Champions League semi-final and still have a chance of reaching the final is remarkable. But I think it will have taught him that actually he needs to freshen up because I do think sometimes 
it's not just about sort of superstar signings, it's keeping it fresh to kind of keep that competition there, but also kind of, I think sometimes the dynamic just needs shaking up. So whether that means kind of moving Trippier on, for example, and getting a new right back, get you know, getting chipping one midfielder out, maybe they might lose Ericsson, for example, because he's, you know, he's only got one year left this summer. So that's a very real issue. I think they'll have to make a judgment call on that because if he's not going to sign, I think they'll have to sell him this summer. It makes it would be financial, you know, suicide not to, really. And I just think that, that they'll have to make some calls. But the one thing is that I'm certain about is that I think he will make he want to make some changes. Because if this season has taught them anything, it's kind of don't rest on your laurels. And I think that there's no doubt about it. I think they're in pole position for Ryan Sessignon. You know, Jack Grealish we've sort of kind of spoken about, sort of kind of as, as you know, I'm sure it'd be a good signing. But I think that will depend on whether Villa go up or not. Um, and I just think there will be some changes. And I think actually that'll be a really exciting start for Spurs. But I think they'll probably have to use the money that they may or may not get from Ericsson, if, if indeed he does go, mm. to, to, to do that. The other side of it, though, as well, if they do bring someone in and they, and they pay big money for them, it'll just explode the, uh, the, you know, their pay structure. Because, mm. you know, the one thing Tottenham don't do is pay top whack wages, and that's where they're also vulnerable this summer or, and, and going forward. You know, unless they pay the going rate, players like, at some point, players like Kane and Ali are going to go, you know what? I could double me money elsewhere, mm. and um, and 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 that tends to happen when you bring a you bring a big money buy in, and they're on you know constant w- wages, and the rest of the dressing room go hang on. Well, you look at what's happening at Man United, for instance. Yeah, you know, with with um, Sanchez. Yeah. Well, I'll have some of that, please. Yeah. But understandable. If John, as Tony says, Spurs are leg weary, Ajax are probably the last team they want to play, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, probably. I just thought Ajax were brilliant the other night. Absolutely fantastic, weren't they? I mean, you know, I mean, just, just, all, I mean, everyone's been raving about De Jong and understandably all season. Delight, you know, was fantastic, you know, I thought, although not particularly tested, you know, I mean. Can he do better than Bayern, by the way? You know, he's been linked very yeah, heavily. Yeah, Arguably, he he look he looks so elegant, doesn't he? I mean, he reads the game brilliantly. He's a step ahead of all, you know, the strikers, and basically brings the ball out. He can step out. He can, you know, his distribution is fantastic, and he looks a really, really quality player. Was, you know, I don't know. It sort of struck me as a kind of a a mix between sort of Ronald Koeman and. and you know, just just honestly, the best the best sort of combination of of kind of the best midfield, you know, the, the midfielder that you can think of, mm. almost like sweeper territory, really. And I thought, yeah, arguably, you know, and Van der Brick, you know, super 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 player, wasn't he? And he looks he, a Premier League player. He right? really does. He's made for it, isn't he? He's got yeah. all the attributes, you know. And and to be honest, I think that their regret will be that they could have finished it off because in that first twenty five minute spell, that was as devastating you know, as you could have imagined. And they basically should have certainly scored a second goal. He had a chance, didn't he, to, to score a second goal, denied by Loris, but that was a good chance. And then basically obviously hit the post late on. But I, I was impressed with the way Spurs battled back, particularly after, obviously, Sissoko came on. But Ajax look a really, really good team. But I do think if you trace their results through the competition, they've been more impressive away from home. So I do still, that's why I think as good as Ajax have been and they've been great, I think sometimes the keeper looks a bit excitable, could, could be gettable. But I also think that at home, I, I, I still think that Spurs are not quite out of this yet. OK. Let's look at the Europa League semi-finals. Chelsea, uh, you know, unbeaten in the last 16 Europa League games, mm. um, a record. Um, decent enough result in Germany. Mm. Will they have enough to get over the line? You'd think so. You know, it's um, I, you know, it's it's one of those situations where they've actually they've got players who should be as a team they should be performing better than they're doing, and we, I mean, we can talk forever about the dysfunction at Stamford Bridge, you know, and um, and it 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 doesn't change, you know, maybe it'll have to change, you know, if this transfer ban is upheld, and um, you know, it's, they've, they've got to bring people back from on loan, maybe they, they'll have to. You know, use some of the players who've come out of that youth system in the academy, but at the moment, you know, it's 
it's it's it's in many ways the same old story. You just feel a slightly underachieving. Um, uh, it's chewing up and spitting out uh, a manager who come with a great record and a, a great reputation. Um, and you know they're probably back into the top four simply because um, because Arsenal and United are so poor. Um, I, is is, is what's going on there good? Would that be a victory? I don't think so. I think it's one of those clubs that needs... Someone needs to press the reset button mm. and they need to start again with a different philosophy. Um, what, what, what will it do if they get in the top four? They get to the final of this? It'll paper over a multitude of cracks mm. and we'll see the same situation going forward. But yet you'd think, you know, with, with Hazard in that team, you know, probably in his final few games for Chelsea, they'll, they should get to the final... And you know, possibly, you know, probably win it because mm. um, they strike me, John, as a team without a real identity. Yeah, I mean, you know, I do think one-one away to Iron Track Frankfurt is a decent, a decent result. And it, the Sari ball has just basically divided the Chelsea fans, isn't it? And, and well, I say divided. Well, Ninety-nine percent against. Yeah, them, I'd say ninety-ten. <laughs> but you know, he's, I, I, it was incredibly attractive what he what he did at Napoli. And he's tried to instigate this, but it's it's just too rigid. And I, I, I don't know whether that's the players or the system or a bit of both that the players don't fit the system. But he's, he has just, I mean, the way that he's sort of stuck and refused to change and, and you know, the substitutes highlight that, don't they? You know, it's a set minute and set sort of group of players that are sort of rotating every game. It's crazy. I mean, the Hazard thing last night, you know, on the, on, on, on the bench, I mean... You know, it's, it, it's bonkers. But then, but then you also see weird things like, you know, I mean, Matt Hughes, I noticed from the Times, has written a story that I thought was was really interesting because he's great on Chelsea, Matt, and he's written this story saying that it's basically that selection has has worried sort of the Chelsea hierarchy. Well. Good story. Mm-hmm. Not knocking that. But how dare they? I mean, that's oh, up to the manager. You can't I, have the board picking the players. Oh, yeah, well, you it's know, crazy. Um, a, a former manager, uh, when the team was announced, uh, get texts from um, from the boardroom which would say uh, the owner doesn't like this team. You know, it's um, I, I crazy, mean, isn't it? That's, but that's Chelsea. I mean, the, the you know, since Mourinho was sacked first time in two thousand and seven, they've done everything they could to minimise the, the the power of the manager. And we're seeing the illogical conclusion of that now. You know, it's, um, uh, you, know, it, it, <laughs> you know, Mourinho and Conte won, won titles and we're gone, you know, the, the next year. You know, Sarri is, um, and, and I haven't got a great deal of sympathy for Sarri in the sense that I don't like template managers. Mm. You know, you look at your squad and you go, oh, how can I get the best out of these players? No, this is what we're going to do now. I know it's not your, you know, you, I know you won't like this position, but you play in that. It never works long term. Yeah. So I'm doing a lot of sympathy. I'm amazed that, that someone like, someone behind Kante hasn't said, "Hang on a second. Yeah, he he would be he would fit into any team in the world, Kante, yeah. and I think he's been wasted completely and utterly. And you know, and um, and and to to basically allow Jorginho to play in that. Why? Why? Who thinks this is a good idea? Mm. Right. Arsenal, well-run club. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It's, it's really weird with Arsenal because I do think that if you'd have said at the start of the season, if you'd have asked any Arsenal fan and then basically said you'll be in a European semi-final um, within touching distance of the final after the first leg, um, they would have bitten your hand off and said Unai Emery is an absolute genius. But the problem is with this is that basically once you raise expectations, which I think Emery did on that long unbeaten run and then also got to a point before the Crystal Palace game that they think, yeah, this this is our top four place for the taking. Then I'm I'm sorry, but they come crashing back down to earth when, when it doesn't go go right. The problem with Emery is that I think it, it, the results tell us that you know that he's doing quite well, and it's a tough job for following on from managerial legend in Arsene Wenger. And so you know to do that is done quite well. But what you know, I still think what is the identity of that team? <laughs> Almost as much as sorry, you know. Is it a pressing team? Is it is it a possession team? It's a bad defensive team. <laughs> well, it, it really is, and and honestly, he needs he needs massive rein, uh, reinforcements this summer. He's certainly not got the cash as it stands to to do that. He really hasn't, and you know they need to to get rid of um, certain players to 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 bring others in. I think they've only got about forty 
45 million pounds tops. And they're, they're, you know, they are looking at a box-to-box midfielder to replace Ramsey. And they're looking for a wide attacker. You know, and so where's the defence come in? So you've got to ship some out before. That squad needs a lot of work. And so arguably, you could say if it needs a lot of work, then he's done very, very well to get them this far. But I do think there's... That there's a few things that just doesn't feel right that, at that, the moment. That'd be a compelling argument if, the, the, well, basically, t- 12 teams in the division went abject rubbish. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 don't even challenge the, the, the top six most of the time, the Manchester Challenge Arsenal. I mean, it, it, it's the opposite in many ways. Uh, sorry, and um, there's no template at Arsenal, as you see. There's no identity. He's tried to mix and match and shift things around, but it all just feels a little lazier of Wenger without, without the entertainment. Yeah. It's, you know, and, the um, football isn't great, honestly. I know people who are, you know, mm. sort of say that then there have been really good games this season, but sometimes the football, we think... And that was, the, that was the thing with Wenger. He did at least try and play football. Everyone knows he needed to change, mm. but Arsenal just looking for that identity. Speaking of Wenger, by the way, um, where do you think he'll end up? Leon are obviously sniffing. Yeah, well, they won't give up. But I've, I personally think, you know, I've written about this, that basically I think he's enjoying his, yeah, his life so much. And far, far greater, by the way, than yeah, I actually yeah. think he thought he would. Mm. Because, he, honestly, he, uh, you know, I was in touch with him fairly recently and there's no doubt about it. I think he's enjoying himself far more than he thought. He's proved to be a brilliant TV pundit. Um, you know, I, I think he's probably had opportunities but I think this, this time out of the game has made him realise, do you know what? I've missed an awful lot of my life. I've sacrificed everything 24-7 for 22 years. If I was a betting man, I would say he won't return to club management mm. and then he'll take up some sort of advisory role, technical director role, either at, either at a top club or, or perhaps more likely a governing body. FIFA yeah. have been keen on him. Yeah, and that's most likely. I mean, he's... Um... You know, he, apparently he's found out that going out for lunch is a good thing. Yeah, you know, he's that's great. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll make a, jour- a we'll thing. make a journey. Out of it, yeah. <laughs> right, just a couple of very quick questions. Um, one from uh, Jonathan Brick: What can Liverpool 2019 learn from Arsenal 2004? <laughs> um, oh, I don't think much at all, really. I mean. From the Invincibles? Um, well, I suppose what you could learn is that freshen up the team by the right players because, actually, the Invincibles, I don't know whether you'll agree with me on this, John. You know, you saw far more than me in that era. But although they went unbeaten that season, the signs of decline were there. The teams over the previous two years were better. The Arsenal teams, they moved the ball quicker. The, uh, the, the movement off the ball was... was you know, was was better, and it's it, you know it, it it's held up as one of the great years. But if I was going to pick my favourite Arsenal team of that period, I'd, I'd probably pick one of the two previous seasons where they they seem to be firing on all cylinders properly. So I suppose what what you need what 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 you could learn from that is that there's likely to be other teams coming up on your shoulder any second. People are going to get their act together. Other teams in the top you know, in the top six. And Arsenal didn't realise in 2004 that Chelsea were about to, you know, sit on the front lawn and fire the £50 <laughs> notes, you know, famously. Um, so I suppose you learn, don't stand still. You know, if you, whenever you stand still, you're going backwards because other people are moving forwards. Right. The two more questions, which I'll fuse into one, actually, because they're very similar. Uh, Umair Ali asks... If we only have one English team in the final, is that a sign of success or a sign that English teams only look great in the Premier League? Uh, Michael Wills uh, adds to that, would no English team in the Champions League final indicate that the Premier League still needs to catch up? Yes, I do think that... Well, I I would say in in answer to the first one, I think it's obvious that I think the, the best two teams by some distance in the Premier League are Liverpool Man City. In a cup competition, you're always going to rely on an element of luck. It could have been just so obvious that they basically could have drawn, been drawn together. So I think you always have that element. On the, on the second one, I do think that, bearing in mind, you know, we had such a strong representation in, in the latter stages of it. Of course, it will be disappointing if they don't cross the line. And I think where it should be the wake-up call is that, that basically is the Premier League too intense? Does it do enough? 
to help and support the, the teams in, in you know, the, the European competition. I think we need to look at maybe shifting fixtures a bit more on a formal level, because at the moment it is informal. Look at what the Dutch did. Mm. And, and there's no doubt about it. Ajax played fresher. They, they were bright, they were enthusiastic, and, and they had an extra yard on Spurs. Why? Because they'd had the previous 10 days off. OK, very, very quickly, who's in your finals? Oh, for, oh, I think the Europa will be an all-English final. And then I think it will be a Spurs-Barcelona final. Ajax-Barcelona. And, you know, it's a... I'm going to say at this point, I kind of don't get the big Cruyff love in. You know, it's a, Barcelona, one of the worst clubs in the world, if not the worst, most hypocritical club in the world, more than a club, yeah, uh, one of the most rapacious businesses ever. And Ajax, you know, they probably should be more successful. Look at the catchment area. You know, they, they get the best players, you know, obviously with PSV. They get the best players, you know, sort of from the area. They should have moments like this more often. You know, they've got the whole of the Netherlands and probably most of Belgium they can pick from and, and parts of Germany. So, you know what? They're welcome to it. And the Europa League? The Europa League? Oh, it'll be, uh, it'll be, it'll be a London derby in Baku, I should think. <laughs> can I you love, imagine that? I love it when Tony sits on the fence. <laughs> I can't see beyond Ajax Barca, but there might be an unpleasant upset in the Europa League. Valencia Chelsea final, anyone? Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.